better. Okay, well, we can talk about that, so give me a moment. Anyway, good evening. The shiur tonight is dedicated to the Rifuah Shlema of Ita Bat Chaya Sara, so Rifuah Shlema, which is healed quickly. Um, we discussed last time the false prophet issue, which is really interesting, even though it's sort of distressing. And now we're up to the years 605. I should have written 605 to 586. That's really a better estimate of where we're going to be tonight, not 609. We dealt with 609 back in two weeks ago. And this is the moment of truth, getting back to the historical thing that matters so much for 605. 605 is where the Babylonians crush and finish off the Assyrians once and for all. They're done. There are no more, I mean, there are people who might still identify with Assyria, but the Assyrian Empire is done, its capital has fallen, there are, they control no territory, they're finished. The Babylonians rule most of the world. By now you need not be a prophet to realize these are the guys who are in charge, and what do we do about them? And that's what we talked about last time in terms of do you form an anti-Babylonia coalition or do you surrender, which was Jeremiah's policy. 605 was that moment of truth. And this is also 605 after, after the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians once and for all. That's where <coughs> excuse me, their king, Nabopolassar, died. And his son, Nebuchadnezzar, becomes the new king. He's the one that many of us have heard about before. He's the one who did all the damage. Nabopolassar, you just need to know from Babylonian and, uh, and parallel sources. He's not mentioned in Tanakh. But Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned plenty in Tanakh. So it's the year 605 where God comes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, you've been a prophet. This is your 23rd year as a prophet. Nothing has happened. The people are not repenting. Everything is going status quo. And this is the moment of truth. And we come to one of the most fascinating chapters, honestly, in the whole Tanakh, chapter 36. The reason why it's so fascinating is because it's one of the very few places that gives you a clear sense of how biblical books were made in the first place. I kind of like that sort of thing. Right, what, what, what we find from this chapter is that Jeremiah has been prophesying orally for 23 years. may have jotted down some notes somewhere in a diary, who knows. But this is the first time that God actually commands him to commit all of that to a scroll. And we actually see the development and evolution of what now is the book of Jeremiah from this chapter. It's really very interesting. But it's also a depressing chapter, so brace yourself. So here we are in the year 605 BCE. Source 1. In the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Get a scroll and write upon it all the words that I have spoken to you concerning Israel and Judah and all the nations. From the time I first spoke to you in the days of Josiah to this day. Okay, here comes a chronicle of 23 years worth of prophecy. Perhaps when the house of Judah hear of all the disasters I intend to bring upon them, they will turn back from their wicked ways and I will pardon their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote down in the scroll at Jeremiah's dictation all the words which the Lord had spoken to him. Quick footnote because I'm so happy to just mention Baruch. I keep on mentioning how Jeremiah really failed, because he did. He really attracted very little attention. But here's one man who came over. Here's a good guy. Baruch ben seems to have been from the noble echelons. He was a scribe. We even found a signet ring which says, Leberech Yahu ben Neriyahu, dating to this period. It's in the Israel Museum. And here's the difference between how I would run a museum versus how the Israel Museum runs a museum. If I had the Israel Museum and I had his ring, he would get a room. I love this man. He's awesome. Here's somebody who actually supported Jeremiah. And instead, I had to search a wall full of signets until I finally found he was somewhere in there. I don't know. So he didn't get any special attention, not even like bold-faced lettering. It seemed kind of strange, but what can, what can I do? I don't, I don't work there. But in the meantime, Baruch ben was an important person who joins Jeremiah and no doubt had a hand in the composition of a proto book of Jeremiah, including what we're reading right now. So what happened is he wrote it down, and Jeremiah wasn't, he was a persona non grata. The king was never going to see him. The king already hated him. So Baruch ben had connections with the nobility, so he spoke to the righteous nobles, and it bumped all the way up until finally the nobles got a reading to the king. They actually brought this scroll into the king. It was sitting in his winter home. And that brings us to, the reason why it matters that it was his winter home is because, like any good king, he had a fireplace. Right? And so the fireplace was active at the moment because you want to keep warm, and that means that the fire was on. So verse 23, I skip a bunch. And every time Yehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut it with a scribe's knife and throw it into the fire in the brazier until the entire scroll was consumed by the fire in the brazier. So he, did, he actually let this man named Yehudi 
read the whole scroll rather than just saying, give me that and toss it away. It seems like there was this magical intent, perhaps, of the king, that the goal was, let him read it, and then I'm going to destroy it, and that will undo any potential harm that this prophecy might do. Bottom line, he cuts it up and he burns it. So this is the moment of truth, because God then replies to Jeremiah in verse 27. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation. Get yourself another scroll and write upon it the same words that were in the first scroll that was burned by King Jehoiakim of Judah. And so Jeremiah got another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch ben And at Jeremiah's dictation, he wrote in it the whole text of the scroll that King Jehoiakim of Judah had burned. And more of the like was added. That little footnote over there is a way of saying, you see the book that you and I are reading right now? It's, it's tipping to that. It's saying that over time, this scroll grew. Because obviously he got many more prophecies, and this gave him a chance. The, the scroll of Jeremiah gradually grew until finally we have some proto-book of what we are looking at today. Obviously, there could have been an editing process, things beyond our (coughs) our knowledge. But all the same, this happened. So, part one of what we're seeing here is that this was the last chance. God is saying, Jeremiah, get this read to the king. It's our last chance. It's 6.05. This is the moment of truth. The king burns up the scroll, and that means that the decree is now sealed. Okay, so that's, what's, that's what actually happened over here. There's a fabulous Rashi quoting a Midrashic tradition. What was written in this scroll? You tell me what was written in this scroll. You know the answer. What was written in this scroll? Not what Rashi thinks, but just what, what does the text say? Yeah, some prophecies, some version. I, I assume, by the way, that it was some sh- <coughs> excuse me, shortened form of what he has said in the last 23 years. Because 23 years worth of material can be vast. And this scroll was recited three times in one day, the third one being to the king, but it had to bump up through the political echelons to get to the king. So there's no way that he, he read all of the prophecies ever. But presumably the scroll included stuff like, repent right now or there's going to be a destruction of the temple. I'm sure that that was in there. And then perhaps a greater elaboration of that, yeah? How literate were the kings? And not just him, but any prior to him. Don't know. Oh, I don't know that that proves that he couldn't read it himself. He is the king, so you have servants do everything for but you. That would seem to have a greater impact had he read it himself. Basically, yeah. Okay, I, I I agree with your drama, but all the same, that, that that's how they did it. I, okay. I don't I don't think that that's a function of his literacy. But in the meantime, Rashi says something pretty remarkable. Actually, Rashi says that this scroll here, unlike what you all thought, and by the way, let's just add what you all correctly thought. It's clear what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the essence of Jeremiah's message up until now. Rashi says that what's written in this scroll is the Book of Lamentations. Okay. The Book of Lamentations, well, what's the Book of Lamentations? It's Echa, and and presumably when was it written? After the destruction. Right? Not that long from now, 19 years or so from now, and traditionally even by Jeremiah. So Rashi knows chronology. He's really very good at it. You know, some people, he, he knows which way is up. He says that, the, that when, it sa- when it says that you know, three or four columns were written, the Gemara, it's already in the Talmud, Rashi's not making this up, says that it means three or four lines, it doesn't mean columns, and it actually gives a little drasha on how selfish the king was. He's like, oh, it's not about me, it's not about me, I don't care if other people suffer. And then finally it said something about the king being exiled, he's like, whoa, 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 better burn this thing. That already t- I take that very seriously. So Yoyakim is a scoundrel anyway. So Ibn Ezra fires back and says, what are you talking about? This isn't, this isn't Megillat Echa, this isn't the Book of Lamentations. The Book of Lamentations was written 19 years later, after the destruction of the temple. There's no reason to think otherwise. And plus, the text that we just read tells us what's in this scroll. It's not the Book of Lamentations at all. It's the essence or or an abridged form of Jeremiah's earlier prophecies. So Rashi knows all of these things, but I think Rashi is on to something really very important. Not on a literal level. Don't, don't, Don't really think that the text here really is the Book of Lamentations. Rashi is hitting on something very important. And what Rashi is hitting on ties us into source number two, chapter 25. I already mentioned at the outset, the book of Jeremiah is not at all written in chronological order. It just isn't. 
it's based on literary and thematic and topical considerations. And so what I'm doing is teaching it in chronological order. And even if you give me a full-blown in-depth course, I still do it in chronological order. It's the only way to teach it and make sense out of what he's speaking to. In other words, we, we're getting a real story out of him. We understand that there's a real historical setting, and he's speaking to real people. So here's another prophecy dated to the year 605, and that's in Source 2. The word which came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, it's the same year, namely 605 BCE, son of Josiah of Judah, which was the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia. This footnote, this is the same guy that we normally call Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't a typo, it's not JPS's problem, it's in the Hebrew that way with the Reish. They got it right. So which one is it? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar? And the answer, of course, is it, 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 no, it is neither. <laughs> these, are, these are Hebrew transliterations of a Babylonian name. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, a, wasn't an Israelite, he wasn't Judean, he didn't have a Hebrew name. This is a, a, an abridgment of his longer Akkadian name. Akkadian was the ancient Babylonian language, which is Nabu Kaduri Utsur. Nabu was the name of one of their deities. Kaduri means to protect, and excuse me, that's, that's the first word, and Utsur means to protect. So it was a very nice name. His father named his firstborn son, Nebuchadnezzar. May the god Nabu always protect my firstborn son. That's what it means. So in most biblical texts, that goes to Nebuchadnezzar with a nun. Whereas in the book of Ezekiel, it's always Nebuchadnezzar. And in Jeremiah, it's the only book that's sometimes Nebuchadnezzar and sometimes Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, if you're keeping score, to Nabuchaduri Utsur. Nebuchadnezzar is actually slightly closer of the two transliterations. But here's something that will rock your world, like it rocked mine back in the day a few years ago when I found this out. To us, nuns and reishas really don't sound that similar. So you can't imagine that anybody would switch them like that. But in the good old days, nuns and reishas were quite interchangeable. And so Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> the way they used to pronounce it was incredibly close and therefore, they were both valid transliterations. This is a perfectly normal thing that happened back in the good old days. If you want one crazy example, if you're a skier, and instead of going to Colorado, you go to Israel. So there's a mountain that you ski there. It's called Mount Hermon. So there's a verse in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a footnote there. It's, it's kind of just an offhand comment about what different people call the Hermon. It's chapter 3, verse 9 in the book of Deuteronomy. Well, it depends on the accent. Sidonim yikru lechermon Sirion. The Sidonim, part of Lebanon, refer to this mountain, Hermon, as Sirion. Ba'emori yikru Sinir. And the Canaanites refer to it as Sinir. You notice that both Reishas and Nuans are flip-flopped. Sirion, Sinir. This was perfectly normal back in the good old days. It's an excellent way of illustrating the point that we're making over here. And our commentators were well aware that Nuns and Reishas were interchangeable. So it's the same person. It's the same... Nebuchadnezzar, which is what we commonly call him. Getting back to verse 2. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. From the 13th year of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me. I have spoken to you persistently, but you would not listen. Assuredly, thus said the Lord of hosts, because you would not listen to my words, I am going to send for all the peoples of the north, declares the Lord, and for my servant, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all those nations round about. I will exterminate them and make them a desolation, an object of hissing, ruins for all time. And I will banish from them the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of bridegroom and bride, the sound of the mill and the light of the lamp. What's the sound of the mill and the light of the lamp next to a bride and a groom? What do the sound of mill and the light of a lamp represent? Prosperity. Huh? Prosperity. Not only prosperity, but that means somebody lives here. If people live here, people are grinding flour, people have lights burning in their windowsills. The point is that the land will be made totally desolate, so that nobody's making bread and nobody's burning a fire. There, nobody's home. Right, that's what he's saying. So not only will celebration cease, but nobody will live here anymore. There's going to be a total exile. This whole land shall be a desolate ruin. And those nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Here's the first of several times that Jeremiah predicts the famed 70-year tenure of the Babylonian Empire. When the 70 years are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their sins, declares the Lord, and I will make it a desolation for all time. 
What Jeremiah is saying here is, you may recall, the previous prophecy that we saw in 36, what's the tone? Hey guys, repent now, it's your last chance. And here we have another prophecy dated to the same year saying, there is no more chance. The decree is sealed. This was the year, this is where it became a point of no return. So Rashi picks up on this. This is where Rashi is in source three. In the fourth year, the year when their decree was sealed that they would be exiled and drink from the cup of wrath. It's a poetic way of saying their decree is sealed. Before the decree, God told the prophet to rebuke them since perhaps they would repent and their decree would not be sealed. This Rashi is golden. Rashi gets the whole thing, as is often the case. What Rashi is saying here is that in the year 605, something cataclysmic happens within the book of Jeremiah. Pre-605 and up to 605 in, the year, in chapter 36 that we just read a moment ago in source 1, the people of Israel had a chance to repent and ward off the destruction. Once Jehoiakim burned up the scroll, that was it. The decree was hereby sealed in heaven, and it was just a matter of time until there was the destruction of the temple down below. So what Rashi was saying is, remember that scroll, what was in it? So Rashi says it's the Book of Lamentations. It wasn't literally the Book of Lamentations. But what he was saying is, when he wrote it the first time, Here the book, here's the Book of Lamentations, Yehoiakim. Do you want this to become a reality? No? Good. Well, then we need to repent. But as soon as he burns it up and, he re- and Jeremiah re- re- rewrites it, or Baruch rewrites it at Jeremiah's dictation, that's the moment when the Book of Lamentations is written in heaven. What Rashi is saying is that the decree has been sealed. And it's only a matter of time until the real destruction 19 years later happens. So I think Rashi is on to something incredibly important. And by the way, even though, and then we'll, and then we'll get to you, Beverly, even though the decree is sealed in 605, Jeremiah simply doesn't change. The one thing that he does change is he'll never call again for repentance. There are no more dated prophecies after chapter 36 where he calls for repentance. The only thing he's going to call for for the next 19 years is please surrender to the Babylonians. In other words, the decree is sealed. They win. We're, 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 we're under them. But we can save lives and the temple if we just pay our taxes. It's not ideal, but it's way better than getting crushed and burned to the ground. Yeah, Beverly. Well, I was just wondering why God would punish the Bubba if, he, if this is his plan. They're carrying out God's oh, plan. Very good. And, and can we think of other examples where wicked kings carry out God's plan and then really pay the price? Paro. Paro is the classic example, right? Paro, we know, Paro doesn't know this, we know that God promised Abraham, Abraham, that the children would be, the descendants would be slaves in a land that does not belong to them. So Paro is actually fulfilling a divine plan, and so is Nebuchadnezzar, right? The only thing is, they're not doing it to fulfill any divine plan. They're doing it because they're really horrible, evil people, right? God holds horrible, evil people accountable for their actions. There's a term that we've discussed in the past. We haven't discussed it in several sessions. I'll mention it again. It's called dual causality. Tanakh operates on dual causality, where people act freely, and therefore for good and for bad are held accountable for their actions, and by the way, sometimes prophecy lets us in on they're also fulfilling a divine plan. So in this case, Nebuchadnezzar will fulfill a divine plan by destroying Israel. And Israel deserves it because they're bad. But Babel, Babylonia, they're just wicked, horrible world conquerors. They're imperial power that are evil. So they're going to be punished for that evil. Right? So God gets what he wants. But on the, on the, on the other hand, the people who, who implement it are disastrous. Okay. So that's the big turning point in 605 where Jeremiah completely shifts his attention toward the political arena where he just pleads with nobles, with kings, whoever he can get his hands on, we got to surrender. <coughs> I just wanted to give you a taste of one part of Jeremiah. It's a survey course after all. I can't have a three-session thing on Jeremiah and not quote source number four. There are a bunch of passages primarily concentrated in chapters 1 through 20, meaning the earlier chapters geographically, I call them. I mean, that's, you know, the... If you just start reading from chapter 1 and go, there will be a bunch of these. Chapter 11 is 1, 12, 14, 15, 17, 18, 20. There's a whole bunch of these. I think I got at least most of them just now rattling them off. I didn't check, but I think that's about right. 20 is my favorite, just because it gives us a window into Jeremiah's soul when nobody's watching him. There's no other prophet who's like that, where we actually get the private thing. What's happening in chapter 20, Jeremiah says some prophecy that offends some nobleman, so the nobleman throws Jeremiah into a stockade overnight, and Jeremiah is not very happy right now. So 
So he's in this lousy stockade. He's miserable. He hates life. He hates the people who he's trying to rebuke. And he also hates the fact that God sent him on this mission. So what we actually get is a window into his soul when nobody's around. And, that's what, and this is one such passage. And we just get to hear something about his moods. There's a scholar. I have no idea who this person is. His name is, or her name is, Karel van der Toorn. Okay, so this individual, I think it's a man, but if it's a, it's a woman, okay, who wrote a book called Scribal Culture in the year 2007. So somebody gave it to me. I flipped through it. And so Karel van der Toorn says that in all of ancient Near Eastern literature, there is nothing like these autobiographical passages in the book of Jeremiah. He says there's no, simply no analog anywhere. There's certainly nothing in Tanakh. That part I could tell you. But there's, but there's nothing apparently anywhere in known, known literature. Nobody kept this kind of personal writing. So here's one such example. So here we have Jeremiah sitting in a stockade, hating life, and talks to God. You entice me, O Lord, and I was enticed. You overpowered me and you prevailed. Meaning, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to be a prophet. I never wanted to be a prophet. Read chapter 1. I started stalling and you said, save it, you're going to go. Right? So, okay, you prevailed over me. I was stuck. I've become a constant laughingstock. Everyone jeers at me. I hate this. I thought, I will not mention him. No more will I speak in his name. Jeremiah's like, hey, maybe I could just quit. Well, it doesn't work like that when you're a prophet. But his word was like a raging fire in my heart, shut up in my bones. I could not hold it in. I was helpless. It's like, look, I wanted to stifle my prophecy, but I just can't. I'm so overwhelmed by this prophetic impulse. It feels like fire inside. I have to tell it over, even though now everybody hates me. I heard the whispers of the crowd, terror all around. Inform, let us inform against him. All my supposed friends are waiting for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be entrapped and we can prevail against him and take our vengeance on him. So people are plotting against him all the time. He's saying this while he's in a stockade, but this is fairly normal. Verse 11. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. Therefore my persecutors shall stumble. They shall not prevail and not succeed. They shall be utterly shamed with a humiliation for all time, which shall not be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous, you examine the heart of the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them, for I lay my case before you. God smite them, and I hope I get to see it. I want them to be punished and bad. Sing unto the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has rescued the needy from the hands of evildoers. He starts singing psalms. Right? He's so excited just imagining that one day God is going to smite his enemies that he's thrilled. He's sitting in the stockade, resenting very deeply all of his, his Judean enemies who are torturing him. And he prays to God to smite him. He hopes, Jeremiah hopes he lives to see the smitage. And he also starts singing a psalm, really just praising God for saving him from his enemies. And then, just like that, Accursed be the day that I was born. Let not the day be blessed when my mother bore me. Okay, now he snaps back into reality. He's still in a stockade, and God hasn't smitten anybody. So he's hoping that that will happen. So he gets a moment of, hooray, Baruch Hashem, this is great. He's getting all the enemies. But now he shifts back to the reality, which is, I hate my life. Cursed be the day I was born. Let not the day be blessed when my mother bore me. Accursed be the man who brought my father the news and said, Mazal Tov, it's a boy. I had a boy is born to you. And gave him such joy. Whatever the news bearer was, let God curse him too. Let that man become like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. Let him hear shrieks in the morning and battle shouts at noontide. The poor fellow just brought the news, right? He doesn't have anything to do with this, but it doesn't matter. Let God go get him. Because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother might be my grave and her womb big with me for all time. Why did I ever issue from the womb to see misery and woe to spend all my days in shame? He regrets being born. In fact, this sounds a lot like the book of Job, right? That's what you're saying? Correct. There are lots of parallels between this passage and the book of Job, where Job also is suffering plenty. He's furious about the whole thing, and he uses very similar language. Yeah, Miriam? It's also the first chapter Beautifully said and absolutely correct. And this ties us back. You know, God chose Jeremiah. What Miriam is alluding to is chapter 1. God's first words to Jeremiah was, I chose you before you were even born. I chose you from the womb. Jeremiah now fires back at God and says, you know, I wish I just would have died there. Don't choose me. <coughs> I wish I never had to put up with any of this terrible stuff. It's a, it, I mean, it's, yeah, Isaac? This is all before he went to Egypt. Meaning at the end of his career? Yeah. Yes. Why? I'm just curious if he, if he 
if he prophesied while he was in Egypt, because this is towards the last 15 years or 12 years. Yeah, he actually got his very last prophecy on record is in Egypt. That which is where presumably he dies. You know, we don't, he doesn't die in the book, but I, I have little reason to believe he left at that point in time. There was a 19th century Italian commentator. His name was Shmuel David Luzzato, known as Shadal. Shadal is a very important commentator and really, really just a fascinating historical figure. I'm, I'm quite, the, quite the fan. Shadal makes a fabulous observation about this and related passages in the book of Jeremiah. In other words, we all read it, and I think we all get the power of A, Jeremiah's misery, B, his mood swings that are going on. See his utter hatred of his enemies. By now he's sick of them. He wants them to be destroyed. He has some other passages in these sections where he just, he prays for violent deaths of his enemies. At the beginning he was a little tamer about it, but over time he just got so sick of them, he wanted, he, he wanted them to die terrible and violent deaths. Shadal makes one very interesting observation. When Jeremiah said these things, he was in private. He was, it was him and God. And he's bearing his soul. But at some later point, look at this. You and I are reading about it. That means he put it in a scroll and disseminated it to thousands of people. And at some earlier stage, presumably, he got out there and spoke about it. Well, what does that do? Why is he sharing that with everybody, including us? It's one thing to bury your soul before God. That's the private piece. That's what it meant when he said it initially. But then he disseminates it, yeah, Megan? Because everybody feels like that sometimes. Everybody definitely feels like this sometimes. Hopefully not quite this bad. This is low. But, but, but in the meantime, all the same, yeah. But, what, but why disseminate it? Why let everybody know this very private and, and the whole other bunches of private experiences, yeah? Right. Excuse me. My thought is that, <coughs> that he's sovereign. No matter what he says in public, you know, maybe others think he's mean-spirited, you know, crazy, whatever it is. But in fact, privately, it hurts him terribly. In a sense, maybe finally he has to say, look, that may be what I said, and it doesn't mean I don't believe it, but this is what I have to go through to do this for you. Right. So Shadal is very close to that. What he, what, he, what he wants to say is that Jeremiah is personally overwhelmed. I mean, what we read here is the real deal. This is his true emotion. But once he comes out of his prophetic dialogue with God, he wants to let the people know, you know, folks, you're all beating up on me. I'm not doing this because I like this. Right? Right? I'm not doing this because I like this. In fact, I hate it. I wish I were never chosen as a prophet. I hate my life. I hate being public enemy number one. But I'm doing this because God makes me do it. This is really God's word. That is the only reason I do this. I don't enjoy it. I didn't like poetry class when I was a kid. I'm just doing this because God makes me. And he's hoping to actually increase his credibility. Maybe somebody actually might listen to him and they realize, you know what, it's true. There's no other reason why this man would ever want to do this unless God really speaks to him. And he's hoping to increase his credibility that way. Perhaps they'll leave him alone a little bit. Maybe they'll even repent. So I think it's a very important insight. Now, there's two layers of meaning. I mean, there could be many layers, but at least two primary layers of meaning. There's the meaning of this prophecy when Jeremiah said it in the first place to God the prayer part of it, where we just get a window into his soul. But we also get the meaning once he shares this with other people, whether orally or later on in writing, where we get a sense of he's trying to persuade his audience of his incredible sincerity, dedication, and the fact that this is most certifiably God's will. Last week we mentioned the, the next cataclysmic... Yeah, sorry, Isaac. He wants recognition. We all need recognition. Right? In some way, it, it, it manifests itself... To, the, to different people, and um, he's validating himself. He's definitely very validated. I can't, I can't disagree with that. Psychologically, of course, you're right. right? In other words, he's, he's in a miserable place, and he's almost reminding himself on some level, I'm doing this because God is sending me. There is an element of self-validation as well. I think that layer that you're describing is more, maybe I'm wrong, in the private dialogue, Right? And then the public dialogue, when he actually disseminates it, it's, at least to me, much more along the lines of Shadal in terms of he's trying to persuade the audience that he's the real deal, which is also an essential part of his message. He needs to be able to do that because right now nobody's listening to him. Okay, but I, I agree. There's that element of self-validation as well. So cataclysmic year number one was 605. That's when the decree was sealed. And at this point, Jeremiah is banished from the palace. There's no way he can communicate with Jehoiakim anymore. So you sort of have to wait him out. Yoyakim dies around the year 598. 
and his son Yehoiachin succeeds him. But Nebuchadnezzar wastes no time. Within three months, the Babylonian army rolls right on into Jerusalem without a fight, because how in the world are we going to fight these guys? They're, they're, they're powerful. Roll right in. They take the king off his throne. They take 10,000 of the best and brightest and noblemen, including the person who becomes the prophet Ezekiel, who will begin his career in Babylonia. And he's next on our agenda come May. And this trauma was big. Because not only did somebody just come in and take away our king, you're not supposed to be able to do that, but they also took away 10,000 best and brightest. In other words, all of a sudden, things really look like the end is coming close. So last week we talked about how that's when the false prophets arose, exactly in this era, after 597. Last week, Shiur was predicated on the year 593, where King Tzidkiyahu, Zedekiah, was actually convening an international summit trying to decide, can we really make it if we revolt against the Babylonians? That was the discussion. That's where Jeremiah came in wearing his ox yoke, and that's where Hananiah ben Azur broke the yoke. That was last week's showdown. And we talked last week about two major innovations that Jeremiah developed in that time, so I'll just review those. One is, if you're not preaching repentance, you cannot be a true prophet. Jeremiah made that loud and clear. He said all these false prophets who are so sincere and love God and are sure that God is going to come through, they never ask for anybody to do anything. They just say it's all going to happen for free. Jeremiah says you guys should realize that means that you're not a prophet. Prophets always try to improve people and bring them closer to God. That's what he's been doing his whole career. So that was one very important innovation that he made then. The other one is that even though dreams formally are part of the prophetic spectrum, Jeremiah shuts these people down and says, you guys are just having good old regular Kashuna dreams. They're not prophecies. You're fantasizing that God will defeat the Babylonians and return B'nai Israel, return the Jewish exiles. But it's your fantasy. It's not God giving you the message. I get the message. You're having regular good old dreams. So those were two innovations that Jeremiah came up with prophetically last week. There's one other that I'll mention now. And that's in chapter 24. It's not in the source pages because it was just too long for... I'm better off just telling it to you outside. I mentioned last time that Jeremiah's visions and prophecies always revolve around stuff that you could buy at Fairway, right? It's just regular household objects. There's nothing, no angelic hosts, nothing supernatural, just regular stuff that you, you and I could buy in a store. So in this particular thing in chapter 24, he has a vision of two baskets of figs. And one basket of figs is beautiful. They're so ripe. It sounds like Paro's dreams. I'm waiting for the junky ones to eat the good ones, right? That's not what's going to happen here. And then there's a junky one. There's one that's all rotten and disgusting and worm-ridden. And so Jeremiah sees these two baskets of figs. And God says, okay, let me tell you what these figs are. The good figs are the Jews who now live in Babylonia. And the rotten figs are the ones who still live in Israel. Okay, I just want to pause here for one second because maybe even a few seconds. All right. Not you, but regular people. If they're just going to be your common criminal shallow theologian for just a second here. And some of the Jews have been exiled to Babylonia and some of the Jews remain behind in Jerusalem. Which ones is God smiling on? The ones who are still in Israel. Obviously, the bad ones were exiled because exile is a punishment. That's very clear, and that's what everybody thought. Everybody assumed, oh, if God exiled these people, they're the bad ones, and we're the righteous remnant, we're the good guys. In fact, the book of Ezekiel talks about how not only did they think they were the good guys, but they couldn't help but notice, hey, free prime real estate, because those guys have been exiled, and they moved into the really good luxury homes in the heart of Jerusalem. They took over their properties because it was right there and they were, they, were, they were available. That's what actually was going on. But that, you know, from the book of Ezekiel, not from here. So <coughs> Jeremiah, with this prophecy of the figs, turns that whole thing on its ear. He you says, did two before. Huh? You did two before when you said all the best were taken. That's exactly what I mean. The best were taken. Uh, 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 so how they be the rotten ones? No, the good ones. The good ones are the ones in Babylonia. So what Jeremiah is doing is turning shallow theology on its ear and says the future of the Jewish community are the people who are already there. 
That was shocking to everybody. I'm shocked. I can't believe it. It would have been so easy to say, for any prophet to say, the people who are exiled, they deserve it. What he's saying is the people who are there, they're going to build the future that comes back. You guys who are still here, you think you're safe? You think God chose you? Forget about it. You're going down. You're going to be destroyed. That was Jeremiah's message, and that's what's going on with the figs. Not only that, but Jeremiah, as the leading prophet of the generation, corresponds with the Jewish community in Babylonia. One thing that I'll always regret, and there's just nothing we could do about this, I would love to have a letter correspondence between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That would be so awesome. We don't have it. In fact, there's no recognition of either book that the other prophet exists. I don't know what that is all about. I wish that we had some kind of something. Prophets very seldom acknowledge each other. It's not surprising, actually, biblically speaking, but man, it would be cool if we just had a letter. But we don't. We do have a letter that Jeremiah actually sent to the Babylonian community, to the heads of the community, and that's in source number five. (coughs) Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the whole community which I exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. In other words, get settled. You guys aren't coming back in two years. Strike roots in Babylonia, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their fruit. Take wives, beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. In other words, build the future, because we're going to be there a long time. And seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you, and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its prosperity you shall prosper. Pray for Babylonia. And... For the record, in you history of Sidur people, this is the verse that became the source for, you know, how we always have a prayer for the government of the country that we live in. It comes from this, it's derived from this verse. Here's Jeremiah telling the Babylonian community to pray for the Babylonians. Not because we like them, in fact, we hated them, rightly so. But it doesn't matter. Their security means that you will dwell securely, and eventually when they fall, you will come back. That's what he's telling them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not the prophets and diviners in your midst deceive you and pay no heed to the dreams that they dream. For they prophesy to you in my name falsely. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So that was all last week, Sheor. For thus says the Lord, when Babylon's 70 years are over, I will take note of you and I will fulfill you to you my promise of favor to bring you back to this place. So this is the same thing as chapter 25, but this adds one detail. Chapter 25 also predicts the 70 years thing, but there it's all about how Babylonia will fall in 70 years. Now mark your calendars, it's 605 BCE now, 70 years they're going down. Here he throws in, not only is Babylonia going to fall, but Israel is going to return. In other words, this is the prophecy of redemption that comes, it's the silver lining at the end of it. Yeah, Albert? Um, now that the prophecy has basically come true, how is it received by it's a great question the answer is we don't know we only have his perspective from what we get what we do find is that later on in this very chapter there were false prophets who were furious at this message because they were predicting that the Babylonians would fall and that the Jews would return in two years that was the party line of the false prophets so they were furious at him and wanted him locked up you know, there were correspondences between the Babylonian community and the priesthood in Jerusalem and saying, can't you do something about this man? He's driving us nuts. He's saying that we're going to be here for a long time. We think we're coming back. There were lots of hopes in both communities for the Jews to return. So we don't know the full story. We only know this, this brief exchange. But there definitely was, there definitely was opposition. So what Jeremiah is doing here is something really remarkable, honestly, because this is such a negative book. And the prophecies have been almost unequivocally negative the whole way from 627 BCE, and now we're already in the ballpark of 593. Nothing has changed. Jeremiah is saying, okay, you haven't repented, sealed decree, all we can hope for is surrender, and otherwise the destruction is going to take place. You're definitely going to be in Babylonia for a long, long time. Don't even bother. But all of a sudden, Jeremiah, of all people, is saying that there's a redemption at the end of this. And if I can believe anybody about redemption, this is my man, right? If somebody who witnesses this absolute negative and the decline and the destruction is coming along and saying at the end of these 70 years, there's going to be a restoration, I I trust him 100%. It's it's truly incredible that Jeremiah is able to prophetically see through this. And we're going to get back to that point in just a few minutes. But before we do, just to fast forward, King Zedekiah, Tzidkiah, continued to agitate toward rebellion. 
And the nobles were very much in favor of this, and false prophets were very much in favor of it, and the society was in favor of it because they didn't want to become vassals. Who wants to pay that kind of taxation? And it's very humiliating, and you're subjugated. It's over. And Jeremiah begs, and he pleads, and Zedekiah has a soft spot for Jeremiah. It's actually very sweet. He wasn't a horrible person like his brother Yehoiakim that we've been reading about before, he wasn't as bad. In fact, he wasn't nearly as bad. There's a softer side to him that I sort of like. That said, he certainly was very weak. And that said, he certainly was listening to his nobles more than he was listening to the prophet. And he was certainly listening to the false prophets more. They imprisoned Jeremiah. They tried to stifle him some more. They threw him into a pit. Finally, they go ahead and revolt. There's terrible starvation in the city. And they hold out, bless, bless the Jewish people, that somehow we're able to withstand the Babylonian siege for about a year and a half, maybe even two years. That's incredible. We did that with the Romans also. I don't know how that's even possible. But we did. We hung in there. We were very tough. We fought for our lives. But the Babylonians were a very mighty empire, and we were so not. So eventually, and without God's help, the Babylonians break through the walls in 586. They break on through, and over several weeks they kill a lot of people, they capture a lot of people, and they finally set the temple in flames in the year 586. And so the decree that we had sealed from 605 now becomes a reality. After, oh, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar sent orders to spare Jeremiah. The king himself, a wicked, vicious, horrible king who destroyed the temple, sent royal orders, make sure not to touch the prophet Jeremiah. Why not? He's pro-Babylonian, right. It's not even the holy man thing. He doesn't care about our holy man. Elias is absolutely right. Jeremiah was on record publicly opposing the revolt. He was loyal. Okay, so if you know Jeremiah, he he doesn't like the Babylonians any more than the anti-Babylonians. He hates them too. He's been prophesying their destruction. But his political posture has been from the beginning and very consistently surrender to the Babylonians and pay them taxes. Be loyal citizens to them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar likes people like that. So he spares Yirmiyahu, he spares his student Baruch, and he spares a man named Gedaliah ben Achikam, who we mentioned his father Achikam a couple of weeks ago, so now we're up to the son, Gedaliah, and he appoints Gedaliah, a pro-Jeremiah and a pro-Babylonian sympathizer, the governor of Judea, now the province. Yeah, Shari? You know what I think the worst thing about the false prophets is that first okay. of all they're telling the people what they want to hear and at the same time by doing so they're giving them a false hope good all true and, and, and very much I, I, I agree maybe were... the people don't want to hear Jeremiah but the fact of the matter is by if they could they recognize yeah, the truth agreed. of what he was saying they could have survived better <coughs> agreed no they were a real problem that all being said so Gedaliah sorry Megan The Moses period of time when God was very present and doing things very overtly for us to men taking over in political battles between countries which we're always losing and uh, it's just gotten a lot very far away from that. Correct. The Moses thing is unusual, by the way. You should, you're, you're right in your observation, but God's overt intervention doesn't happen on a regular basis throughout the biblical period or beyond. The normal mode is closer to what we're reading about, right, where people have to help the process along. Jeremiah is saying this is what God wants of us, which is very helpful. We could use stuff like that today also, right? But, I mean, a lot of people think they know what God wants for us, but they're, don't listen to them. Those are the first people I wouldn't listen to, right? But at least when you have a real prophet, he was saying... This is what God wants for us to do. But all the same, there was a lot of politics. There was a lot of human action in all of this. Gedaliah didn't last very long because there were anti-Babylonian forces still around in Judea. So they assassinated him, and and we fast for him on an annual basis to this day. And then finally the community, the survivors come to Jeremiah and they say, we would like to go to Egypt, but what does God think? We'll do whatever you say. That's nice. It's taken them long enough. It's been over 40 years. They finally say, we want to listen to you as the prophet. So Jeremiah gets a prophecy from God saying, let's stay in Israel. Don't go to Egypt. So he tells them that. God says, we have to stay here. Don't go to Egypt. So they say, well, that's not what we wanted to do. We were hoping you'd say that God says that we're going to go to Egypt. We're going. And not only are we going, but we're schlepping you. So they kidnapped him and his student Baruch, and they schlepped them all down to Egypt. This goes back to Isaac's 
point. And so the final survivors of the community go down to Egypt. It goes back to something we talked about in the Book of Kings, that the final destruction is not only a destruction of the temple, but the exiles go to Babylonia, which is where Abraham is from. And they go to Egypt, which is where, going back to Megan's point, where the Moses and company are from. So we're undoing the whole project. In other words, this destruction isn't just a bad cataclysmic thing. It's that all of the purposes of creation and the God Israel project are destroyed. It's gone back to square, we've gone back to square one. We've lost the promised land, we've lost the temple, we're left with where we started. We're back in Babylonia, we're back in Egypt, and that's all very, very, very bad. The last prophecy that Jeremiah gets is chapter 44, which is not the last geographical chapter in the book, but it's the last chronological one. Jeremiah's final words to the people are, Dear Jews now living in Egypt, which is where I happen to be also, what is your problem? You're worshiping idols down here. Have you learned nothing from the last 40 years? Like I've been telling you for quite some time now that if we keep on worshiping our idols and we keep on doing bad things, there will be a destruction. There was a destruction. Okay, it all happened. So maybe now you'll listen. But no, you're turning to idols. And they say, Jeremiah, never talk to us again. We're never going to listen to you. They interpreted history backwards. They said, whenever we worship idols, that's when things are good for us. And whenever we serve God, that's when things are bad for us. So go away, we're not listening to God anymore. And it's just like the most depressing ending to Jeremiah's career. He dies presumably in Egypt, even though he doesn't die in the book. And he was a total failure. And you look back on his career, and he got nobody to repent in the first 23 years. He got nobody to surrender in the next 17 years. There was a destruction. He got a few disciples, Baruch Benaria being the most prominent, but he had other supporters as well. He ends up in Egypt altogether, despite his prophecy saying, let's stay here in Israel. He could have at least died in his homeland. But no, he has to end up in Egypt too. And the last thing he sees is his co-religionists worshiping idols altogether. The fact that Jeremiah, of all people, has prophecies of consolation anywhere in this book, there are not many, but the fact that chapter 29 says, you know, there's a silver lining to all this. There's going to be an end in 70 years is amazing. There are also four chapters that are concentrated right after chapter 29. There are chapters 30 through 33, which are messianic prophecies of Jeremiah. The most celebrated one we read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, and I'm going to read an excerpt from it. This might sound very familiar to some of you. Source number six. Thus said the Lord, a cry is heard in Ramah, wailing, bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children who are gone. Thus says the Lord, Restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from shedding tears, for there is a reward for your labor, declares the Lord. They shall return from the enemy's land. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall return to their country. So the matriarch Rachel is crying, statistic. The only place out of the book of Genesis that Rachel is mentioned, right here. Amazing. She's a very important person, right? And, and all the same, she's mentioned a lot in Genesis. She plays a prominent role, of course, as one of Yaakov's wives. But that's it. We never hear from her again. We never hear her name, except for this one spot. So why does Jeremiah, of all prophets, invoke Rachel imagery when describing how she is crying for her children in exile? She's considered the children. Yeah, Barry? She died along the way. Okay, and? Very good. So she, you, can, you can totally play with what you're saying. What Beverly and Barry are saying, I think, is part of the story, right? That she died in childbirth. She's buried kind of like on the border. She's in the land of Israel, but she, she's not in the ancestral plot in Hebron. She couldn't make it over there. So she's almost like on the border, always like deprived of that motherhood. And so there's this poignant imagery of she is the mother of the exiles. Good. Okay, so that's part of it. There's another piece of it, which, which you need more of this chapter for, that part of this chapter is dealing with Ephraim. Ephraim was the nickname of the northern kingdom. You know, it was the tribe of Joseph and Ephraim. They founded the northern kingdom, which is no longer in existence. The northern kingdom was exiled back in Isaiah's time, right, in 722. But all the same, we never stopped longing for them, and Jeremiah doesn't either. So he's calling for the tribes of Joseph to return. Who is Joseph's mother? Also, it's Rachel. So on a contextual level, there's the Rachel dimension just from that point of view, that we want the lost tribes, the ten lost tribes, to return. 
There was a fabulous interpretation proposed by Dr. Bryna Levy. Maybe some of you are familiar with her work. She's an educator in Israel. She wrote a book in 2008 called Waiting for Rain. Fascinating book and a totally different perspective from the types of stuff that I usually read. I I thought this was great. So she had a fabulous insight over here. She says elsewhere in the book, again, we haven't even discussed it, but in chapter 16 it is, God commands Jeremiah not to get married or have children while in Israel. And the logic is, we're going into exile. Don't build roots here. It's kind of the opposite of the prophecy that we did read of chapter 29, where Jeremiah tells people to have families in Babylonia, because we are going to be there for a long time. (coughs) So God ordered Jeremiah not to get married, not to have children, because not to build any roots in the land of Israel. So... As the Jews are getting exiled and Jeremiah sees all of this and is tormented, he identifies with Rachel, the barren mother. That's Brian O'Levy's take on the whole thing, that he feels like Rachel right now. In other words, he doesn't have any children either, and the whole reason he doesn't have any children is because God ordered him not to make any roots. Now that he's seeing the exile actually happening, he identifies with the matriarch Rachel. So that's how she interprets the whole thing. Me, I guess, more of a man's perspective, right? I think that Jeremiah identifies with the person named Joseph, not just with the tribes that he's longing for. Throughout the whole story, they throw him into a pit. He's dealing with false prophets the same way that Joseph was competing with the magicians. He's the dreamer, but the true dreamer, unlike the false dreamers or the false dream interpreters over there. So from that point of view, he identifies very strongly with Joseph. Even when they throw him into a pit, it says that the pit was empty and it didn't have any water. The text wants to make sure that we hear the Joseph side of the narrative as well. It sounds very much like Jeremiah identifies with the person Joseph, and therefore he identifies Rachel as his mother. In other words, he's feeling his own mother here, Rachel, crying on his behalf. All of these different dimensions are all true, meaning that Jeremiah longs for the northern kingdom to return. He feels bereft. He feels that, his, that he himself is the Joseph of the story. And bottom line, he prays for Rachel to be the one to herald the redemption. And God comforts her by saying, don't worry, your children will come back. One paradox of life, by the way, which is, you know, I could talk about this forever, but I'm going to talk about it for 30 seconds. In life, you know, the, Yaakov married the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. What, what did Leah have that Rachel didn't? She had children, and Rachel was barren for a while until the end, right? And what did Rachel have that Leah didn't have? She had the love of the husband, right? So that's the tension in the narrative, right? That Leah feels very unloved, rightly so. She's certainly less loved and significantly less loved. Rachel has the love of the husband, but she desperately wants children. And Leah desperately wants the love of her husband. That's what they want. Well, in death, who is buried next to Yaakov? Leah is buried next. For eternity, they lie next to each other, side by side. Rachel's not in the grave. So Leah gets her husband in death. And what does Rachel get over here? She becomes the matriarch. Right? In death, she ends up becoming the one who becomes the mother of Israel. Right? It's, it's fascinating, this flip-flop that happened. I don't think it's an accident. So I think that's another dimension of what's happening here in the book of Jeremiah. Now, huh? She died in childbirth when she gave birth to Benjamin. And that prohibits her from being... Well, what happened, you couldn't, you couldn't delay the burial. You didn't have that good refrigeration stuff that we have. They had to bury her right away. Where, where did she have um, Joseph? Where, uh, Benjamin? Um, it, uh, that's a complicated question, and the archaeologists aren't sure either. The two leading candidates are somewhere in the Bethlehem area, and another one is somewhere near, nearer to the, what, the tribe of Benjamin, which is right next to the tribe of Judah. Complicated wherever she is, but, she, but she's somewhere not Hebron. Hebron was the patriarchal shrine, that's, it still is, and Yaakov and Leah are buried next to each other. So I think it's important that in death, they came together. Just give me a couple of minutes. I want to make sure to bring everything home. So Jeremiah also says one other thing in the, the next part of this paragraph in source six still. Verse 35. Thus said the Lord, who established the sun for light by day, the laws of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea into roaring waves, whose name is the Lord of hosts. If these laws should ever be annulled by me, declares the Lord, only then would the offspring of Israel cease to be a nation before me for all time. Jeremiah says explicitly here what he's been saying the whole book, which is the people of Israel really do think that the God-Israel relationship is done after the destruction and the exile. They really do. 
And only a Jeremiah can tell them that God says that that's not true. What he's been saying up until now is that the, the destruction is vindicated in the sense that the people deserved it, but God waits with his open arms. That in 70 years we're really coming home. The God-Israel relationship is eternal. The only thing that will stop it is if the stars stop shining. In other words, well, some stars may burn out, but please don't, don't even bother. The point is that the stars are eternal, so is the sun, and, and, and the idea is that God and Israel likewise are eternal. Now, Jeremiah died a complete failure, but he gave this vision of hope at a time where literally we needed it more than any other time before. There's no time before the destruction that the people of Israel felt this is it. And along comes the prophet Jeremiah and says there's a future here. What happened is, years go by, Jeremiah presumably dies. And in the year 550, so now, where are we? Now 55 years into the Babylonian Empire, some guy named Cyrus of Persia revolts against the Babylonians. That is truly incredible because the Babylonians, not only were they invincible, but they're, you have to remember, they were scientists in the old astrological way. They were astrologers. And their astrologers, amazingly enough, using the most modern scientific methods, demonstrated scientifically that Babylonia would always reign. Because that's what science said. That's what the stars said. And they were, they were renowned. We actually have, deal, but what we call shooting. We actually, archaeologists have, people from all over the world wrote to the Babylonian astrologers because they were the best. So if they had questions, that's who you asked. You would international correspondence with these astrologers. It's amazing. These guys were renowned. And the Jews thought so too. Everybody thought so. Who would think otherwise? The Babylonians are invincible. They beat the Assyrians. Nobody beats the Assyrians. But they did. And now they're ruling. So they're obviously better and even stronger. Nobody's going to dethrone them. Well, in 550, Cyrus the Great, well, he wasn't the Great yet, but he quickly became the Great. Cyrus revolts and amazingly wins. And just like the Babylonians years earlier comes out of his lair and just starts stomping all over the Babylonians, and the Babylonians crumble. Nobody can believe it. Within 10 years, the entire Babylonian empire dominoes. It just completely collapses. 539, Cyrus, now the great. You know that world history remembers people as great if they kill enough people. That's pretty much what our history books tell us. It's very bizarre, and I have trouble with this, but okay, I have a different concept of who's great. Be that as it may. They march on the city of Babylonia. And the defenders of Babylonia open up the gates without a fight, and they welcome their new emperor. There's not even a fight. He doesn't have to beat battle against the Babylonian city. The capital city opens its gates. They welcome him as the new emperor. And Cyrus the Great is now the emperor of Babylonia, 539. Which, if you're keeping score, the Babylonian Empire began in 605. So how many years are we? 66. If that isn't 70... I don't know what it is. Biblically speaking, that's 70. Right? In other words, it doesn't have to be 7-0, the number between 6-9 and 7-1. It would have been cool if it were. It's not. But in just 66 years, the entire Babylonian Empire just suddenly has fallen apart, is no longer. And then in 538, something perhaps even more remarkable from our point of view shows up, and the book of Ezra kicks off with this in source 7. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, when the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah was fulfilled. Notice how it starts. It tips its hat to Jeremiah. Wow! Talk about a miracle. Jeremiah said that in 70 years the Babylonian Empire would collapse and the Jews would come back. Nobody believed him. Just nobody. Because how could that be true? The Babylonians will never fall and nobody's going to bring us back. Lo and behold, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his realm by word of mouth and in writing as follows. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me with building him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He permitted the Jews to return and build the temple. This is shocking. But not to Jeremiah, who is long dead. But that doesn't matter. Jeremiah said, okay, bingo. This is what I prophesied. Here we are. Mark your calendar. Here we are in 538, exactly 67 years after the Babylonian Empire started. Babylonian Empire is now no longer. Cyrus the Great is in charge, and he permits the Jews to return and build the temple. And they did. You know, the, the story, that story is a little more complex. We'll talk about that when we get to Ezra next year. But for our purposes, the book of Ezra salutes Jeremiah. Right? It's the first thank you note in history. And I, I think I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, if I had to write thank you notes to different characters, he would be one of my top five lists in terms of how we got to be here today. There's no way we would have been here without Jeremiah's vision of hope at a time when everybody thought it was over. 
And so it, 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 it's, a, it's a great book. It's very powerful. It's, lots of it is very depressing. But all the same, he, he really helped get us through the hardest moment in the entire biblical period for 70 years. That's a long time. That's two generations or so. But all the same, people hung on. And when they were returned, they were able to thank Jeremiah and salute and said, oh, he was right all along. And, and that's something which opens up a new chapter in our history. Ad Khan. Um, we're now... This is always sad, actually, but we're now done with this next round of eight sessions. We're, we're done with that. We finished Jeremiah. We will now break until after Pesach. We have four more sessions. Originally, the calendar said six, but looking at the material, it doesn't make any sense at all to do six. It makes sense to do four. So I already cleared that with Rabbi Weinstock. There will be four, and I'll send you emails with all that stuff. After the break, we will, meaning in May, we'll have four Wednesdays. They'll all be this time slot, by the way, 7.15 to 8.15, because of the Mincha and Arvi prayer services that come right before. And we'll have three sessions on the book of Ezekiel, which he's a younger contemporary of Jeremiah, but boy, oh boy, different kind of book. So we'll, we'll get there when we get there. And then one, just as a dramatic, climactic finale, we'll do the book of Jonah. So I thought that would be a nice way to end this year, and then we'll pick up in October with the, the 12 minor prophets. I want to thank all of you for continuing to come. It's always... I always appreciate when, when adults, you know, you all have such busy schedules, and then it's also gotten kind of chilly for various things. I always appreciate when people come out and, and learn together. I always appreciate your comments, both in she or the emails that I get. And I, again, want to thank KJ and the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals for co-sponsoring this series and making all of this possible. Thank you so much.